This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. For the past two weeks, the world has had its eyes on the violence in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Each day, new headlines emerge of Hamas launching rockets from Gaza, Israel bombing the Strip in return. More than 200 Palestinians and a dozen Israelis have died in the attacks. Before the aggression escalated into direct action, tensions had been simmering for weeks. 13 Palestinian families from a neighborhood in a disputed area of East Jerusalem were facing potential eviction. Many Israeli families have already moved into this neighborhood. Israeli settlements on land Palestinians believe to be theirs has consistently been a wider source of grievance between the two communities. Then, two weeks ago, police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem during Ramadan. The third holiest site in Islam is also located on the same land as the Temple Mount, a location sacred to Jews. After 11 days of fighting, a ceasefire has been announced will likely halt the rockets and shelling for now. But it's unlikely to heal the long-term rifts between the communities. What's more, hundreds of people now grieve loved ones, including more than 50 children, who were killed in the past two weeks. This week on Quick to Listen, we're going to talk to someone very close to the ground, whom we believe can help us better understand what's going on over there, and more importantly, help us grasp how we should view and act on these issues as Christians. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm the Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted, this is quite a topic to do a gut check on. Never lost we will endeavor. Kind of eager. Maybe we should just get the gut check this week. No, I mean that's my view. I mean, um, yeah, my gut check is like I'd really prefer not to give a gut check just because anytime I go into this conversation, it's with a fair bit of trepidation, especially in my role with the hat on of executive editor of Christianity Today, because I just feel like. I'm going to say stuff that's going to make people upset and some of it maybe intentionally and some of it unintentionally. It's just that I, I, I'm a kind of person where when passions are hot, I tend to go like super cold and tend to move off. I, I've, you know, I've lost interest in kind of origins debates. I've lost interest in, you know, so many of the things that get a lot of my complimentarian uh, egalitarian really, debates. Yeah, yeah, the complimentarian egalitarian thing. So many things that get Christians really cranked up. I just am like, because people are so cranked up, I'm like, all right, I'm going to think about something else. Like, I don't see a lot of hope for, I don't see a lot of hope in engaging in that conversation. I am, <laughs> I am hopeful about this conversation. We worked hard to find a guest that I, I would find hope on. But I mean, part of it is I just, I mean, I do have, I do have views. I mean, I have views. I'm, I'm wary of using a lot of scripture as kind of proof texting in this. I, I, I mean, my mind keeps going back to, you know, Isaiah 5, or it's woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till there's no space left and you alone live in the land. I'm like, man, that like every time I think about the settlements, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, man, Isaiah just screams pretty loud to me, you know, but there's other verses about, 
peacemaking that also that also come into play. So I'm eager for this conversation, but I I have to say that um I'm coming to it frankly a little bit tired. I know I should probably to make it you know good and interesting podcast. I should probably put on airs of of being really hyper inquisitive about this, but I'm walking on the on the slightly more anxious and tired side of things. And I, that, that's for me. I know that's a place of privilege, Morgan. I know I'm like super privileged to to be like, I don't have to think about that. I can read the headlines in the New York Times and not have to read the articles. Like I don't have to deal with the rockets and, and the bombs and the rocks and the, and the, you know, all that stuff. But I don't know. I have that privilege and I'm exercising that privilege for the most part. How about you? I would say that in this particular instance, I feel... I resonated with what you said about the fact that this discussion is so hot and that, you know, I I don't always feel this way, but I have felt this propensity to kind of not want to match the heat that I feel is already being emitted from this conversation, mostly because I haven't been exactly sure how that will actually help people better talk to each other on this. I feel like this has been a debate in American context in particular where I see a lot of people very sure of what they believe and, you know, that in in general makes it hard for me as someone who doesn't necessarily feel like they have enough information all the time to be able to wade into this, much less help people understand what is going on. So this, the fact that we were going to do this podcast with a guest who I think (laughs) has been walking the walk of trying to convince people to that are enemies to sit at the same table with each other and has had to engage this, you know, from how they actually live their lives was something that made it really appealing to do this show this week. I think that gave me a sense of like, I will not only understand this better, as I said a couple minutes ago, from the facts on the ground, which I think the facts are absolutely relevant. And I'm glad that we're going to be talking about the facts here. But I also think that we'll be able to understand this better from a faith perspective, which is what I really care about, since there there are several different elements here. One of them is that American Christians are not just bystanders in this discussion, but are actually people who often have weight in what happens in that part of the world. But also because a lot of times, at least in American Christian circles, this issue is really heated because of particular theological convictions that folks have. And so I want to get into that as well. Anyway, I hyped up our guest a little bit, but Ted, can you tell us who is joining us today? <laughs> yes, indeed. I am also excited about our guest. It's Salim Munayer. He is executive director and founder of the Musalaha Ministry of Reconciliation, which has been bringing Israelis and Palestinians together since 1990. Salim is a Palestinian Israeli born in Lawn, is one of six children. He has his BA from Tel Aviv University in History and Geography, his MA from Fuller Seminary, Graduate Studies in New Testament from Pepperdine, his PhD is from the Oxford Center of Mission Studies in the UK. And of particular interest to our conversation, he's published a lot of books on reconciliation, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Christians in Israel and the Palestinian Authority. He has served as academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College from 1989-2008, which uh, you can read a lot about Bethlehem Bible College and a number of leaders there at CT's website. He's still a professor of theology at the college, and he also adjuncts at Hebrew University, teaches dispute resolution at Pepperdine. Most recently, worth noting, Salim is the new network coordinator for Middle East and North Africa for the World Evangelical Alliance. And since I've already been mentioning a bunch of things about him, 
I will also note that he is married to Kate and has four boys. And Salim, thank you for coming on to Quick Talks. Oh, thank you and good morning and good evening here in Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah. Ted just read some of your bio information, but I would actually like to hear a little bit more about you. Can you tell us what it means that you are a Christian who is Palestinian-Israeli? Oh, yes. Uh, it sounds like somebody with those identity definition will be schizophrenic. I find speaking to many American, especially Christian groups, that there is kind of gap in knowledge, understanding uh, the people of the land and the history. And usually they have a certain historical narrative that need to be adjusted. First of all, Palestinian people are mixed people that they are coming from Jewish, Arab, Egyptian, Phoenician, Roman, Greek, anyone that passed through this bridge between Asia, Africa, and Europe. So we're a good salad of people, ethnicities, and our identity is very much influenced by the different civilization that been in the land. Past Christians, uh, Christian of the land, Palestinian Christian of the land, are coming basically most of them, not all of them, of course, from three distinct groups lived in the land. The Jewish community at time of Jesus that embraced Jesus, the Arabs that lived in the land that embraced Christianity too, and also more what we say the Phoenician Greek community. So we trace our history, we trace our spiritual identity to the early church. Until 1948, Jews and Arab Muslims and Christians lived in the land, but as a result of the desperate situation of the Jewish people in Europe, they were looking for safe haven, they were looking to affirm their identity, also was part of the nationalism as ideology that developed at that time in the world, especially in Europe. So at the beginning, beginning of the process, where the Jewish community began to redefine itself as a people, as a nation, as a result to have a state. And uh, they wanted to do different places, and then they wanted to establish a Jewish homeland state in Palestine. But in Palestine, the land was not empty. There were other people living in the land, the Palestinian people, there were a small Jewish community, there were large Christian community, and majority are Muslim. Also the Muslims, some of them are descendant from Jewish and other nations that embraced Islam in the land. That they were the conflict started between the indigenous people of the land, group of people coming from outside, aided by European powers for imperial colonial purposes. The Middle East become very important at that time to the First World War because of Suez Canal, oil, the wars between the and competition between the empire. Other than that, also it's aided with certain theological beliefs that began to develop toward the mid-19th century that basically it says that in order for Jesus to come back Basically, dispensational theology that says that the Jewish people, assuming that the Jewish people in Europe are the descendants that left the land, need to come back to reestablish the Davidic kingdom, to rebuild the temple, and that will inaugurate Gog and Magog battle and the rapture and so on. 
that theology was very much in certain circles popular in Britain among policymakers, but also was mixed with anti-Semitic attitude to Jews. The Jews at that time were the ultimate other, representing the East, the others, also representing Arab and Muslims. So how we are going to get rid of the Jews from Europe, but also the suffering, especially of the Jews in Eastern Europe, where Western European nations, including United States, did not want to have Jewish refugees. We're talking about at that time around 3 million. So Palestine seemed looked good things to do from political, economic, military, and theological reasons. In that process, the war was between the Palestinian and the Zionist movement, where in that process, realization by the Zionist movement that in order to establish exclusive Jewish state, they will have to move the Palestinian people and that what started what we call some Israeli historian, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So my home city, Lot, that you hear about it in the news too recently, have been conquered by Israeli forces. Lot is an important city for the Christian in the Middle East because it is a city where St. George Church and Grave is. St. George is a patron of England, is the one that you see on the horse killing the dragon. It's very one of the oldest cities in the world and very important Christian history and heritage in the land. When the army of, uh, ordered my father to get out of his house, he and 200 Christians found refuge in the church and they became refugees in their hometown and they were not allowed to go back to their homes was a massacre in the city. Most of the people became refugees. So my family became refugee in their hometown, in the city where my grand-grandfather rebuilt again the Church of St. George, who were Orthodox. So here my family found itself a new reality, one of the most well-to-do family in the area, where they have to learn Hebrew, to learn a new culture. So I born into that uh, reality that we Palestinians call a Nakba, catastrophe. And so I grew up in a mixed community of Jews, Palestinian Christians, and, and Muslims. I become multicultural, multilinguistic. I had many Jewish friends. I went to Christian school, Arab school. Then I went to Jewish high school, and during my time in a Jewish high school, I asked a lot of questions, and in that process, I began a journey finding the Jesus and who he is in his teaching, in his inauguration of the kingdom of God, is an answer to the political situation, to the pain that was happening in my land. And that's the reason I went to study at Fuller, coming back to the land in order to teach both Israeli and Palestinian. So my Israeli identity, as you know, 25% of the citizens of the state of Israel are not Jewish. Uh, Jewish. People, a lot of people think Israeli are Jewish. That's not accurate. That without the Palestinian territory and Gaza Strip, they have Palestinian citizenship. So this is where I am 
Israeli, I'm Christian, I'm Palestinian. There is a tension, there is challenges, but also you can turn it into richness because other uh, identity of your neighbors is not the source of uh, threat, but is a source of richness into your own personal and group identity. Tell me a little bit about how Jesus changed that sense of identity and how in the years since Jesus, you know, having that kind of radical moment, how you have went back up. And then just tell me a little bit over the years how Jesus and your relationship with Jesus has continued to shape that sense of, of identity. And I grew up in a church that was a liturgical church. And liturgy is beautiful, and liturgy mean a lot. I was an altar boy. I had questions. I'm living. I am living in a city that there was an open, unresolved tragedy and scar and atrocity that's been committed against the people. But the people that living in the city and the people that their parents or their army committed those atrocities become my friends. And you also realize that because you are Palestinian Christian, the opportunity before you, you are third-class citizen. We were not having the same opportunity and possibilities. And you walk in the street and you see that your grandfather's house become the city hall. You travel in the land, especially a lot of the land around Tel Aviv Airport, the Ben Gurion Airport, used to belong to your family. You see your parents economically struggling when they used to be the most richest people. You experience also hatred and enmity from your uh, neighbors, uh, not only because you're Arab-Palestinian, also because you're Christian, because some of the Jews that came and lived in the city, they're coming from Europe, and they had very negative experience with European Christianity, and they projected their fears, their anger, their frustration, and their pain into you because you suddenly become representative of the two groups that they don't like and feel threatened by. And at that time, many young people like me said, hey, listen, we don't have a future here. We just need to pack and go to Australia. You know, my father told me, maybe physically you'll go to Australia, but you will take your conflict with you inside of you in your heart. I ended up in a Bible study that one of our relatives has a concern. He, he, he was a believer. And he has a concern that we are growing without any New Testament teaching. Again, asking people around, who is willing to teach New Testament? Uh, Even he put an ad in Jerusalem Post, who is willing to teach New Testament? Out of the blue, Jews that believe in Jesus answer that ad. And every Friday, a group of us from high school, Palestinian Arab kids, boys and girls and Jewish kids, that's the 70, were sitting together uh, drinking Coca-Cola and and debating and studying the New Testament and other issues. But here is Jesus being presented to me. Jesus dealt with the Roman occupation. Jesus dealt with a corrupt political economic leadership. Jesus dealt with nationalistic ethnic strife and hatred toward Jews, Samaritan, Roman, Greek. And Jesus presented the kingdom of God. And at the kingdom of God, the prayer of our Lord, thy kingdom in heaven will be on earth. The reality of the kingdom of God in heaven 
need to be manifested in our life as we are forming a community across gender, ethnicity, community where reconciliation, love, and equality between the people is the mark of that community. And Jesus, our Lord, our King, our leader, that we are in the world as a yeast, as a salt, as a light. We don't have to conquer. We don't have to dominate. We are called to serve. We are called to love, to bring people together, to break this enmity. The enmity that I had in my heart toward many groups of people in the land has been transformed from anger to our my neighbor into seeking to see how my neighbor and I can together manifest the goodness of God here in the land. Salim, you are saying so much really riveting stuff. I want to pivot now to talk about the current crisis. What makes this violence that's happening right now different from previous episodes of violence that have happened? There are several factors, uh, really, is that uh, almost since, let's say, 10 years, the issue of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has not been addressed by both uh, Israeli leaders that were very, very content with the status quo, incompetence of the Palestinian leadership, not caring uh, of European and also the one-sidedness of the American foreign policy in the churches concerning Israel. So the people on the ground, they see every day the expansion of the settlement. They see every day checkpoint. They see every day limitation imposed upon themselves, especially in East Jerusalem. What's happening in recent years increasingly is Palestinian neighborhood like Silwan, that uh, what we call the city of David, the city of Jerusalem have changed uh, the designation of the area to archaeological area where there is a whole neighborhood and there is a group of settlers that called Ateret Ghanim are doing legal and not legal way and using all kind of means to move out of the Palestinian from their neighborhood. It's happening in the old city. Also, Christians are being moved out of their homes, uh, Muslims in different neighborhoods. And that stir again the traumatic experience of a Nakba when 750,000 people has been uh, for different reasons, found themselves as refugees, but in the end of the day, it's moved. So that was ongoing police brutality, discrimination, racist statement, uh, more right-wing of Israeli government, and not seeing any possibility of uh, prospect of moving ahead, added to it the corona that led to a lot of employment, a lot of uh, economic hardship. Let me just ask one question really quickly. For people that don't really have a clear sense of kind of the geographic demarcations, can you just say a little bit about who, for lack of a better word, has control over Jerusalem and some of the tensions over that uh, so people understand that? 
Yeah. In 1967, Israel took over Jerusalem. And after they took over Jerusalem, the old city, mainly the old city, they changed the borderline of the city of Jerusalem that includes many Arab-Palestinian neighborhoods. For example, the border of the city of Jerusalem had expanded almost to building area of the city of Bethlehem in the south and in the north to Ramallah. Majority of the people that live right now in East Jerusalem are Palestinian. And the Jews that live in East Jerusalem are living in a neighborhood settlement that Israel built for Jews after 67. In other words, West Jerusalem was Jewish side. East Jerusalem was supposed to be the Palestinian side. Like that was the ideal. More and more by government policy, not allowing Palestinians to build homes so people build illegally, confiscating lands and building Jewish neighborhood in East Jerusalem. But the key things is during the peace negotiation, the idea was that East Jerusalem will be the capital of Palestine, West Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel. The right-wing government that we have here for almost 15 years and more wanted to prevent that. They don't want the two-state solution. So in order to prevent that East Jerusalem will be the capital of Palestine, so they start what people use the language here, Judaizing Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem, and also in the area of the old city, Mount of Olives, City of David Silwan, we call it in negotiation the Golden Basin. During the negotiation, the idea was the Golden Basin belongs to God. Everybody can come and pray, everybody can come and go, but it will not be under sovereignty, of, exclusive sovereignty of any one of the parties of the conflict. And the right-wing government want to change that. And in order to change that, one of the most important area is Haram sharif Temple Mount, and the fear of the Palestinian Muslims that there are Jewish groups that want to blow up the Al-Aqsa Mosque the Dome of the Rock, in order to rebuild the temple. And that is not a fear, not founded. Uh, several underground Jewish groups have attempted to blow up. And in the last incident, in the last minute, the secret Israeli service were able to stop them. But also we need to remember that the Christian guy from Australia came and torched Al-Aqsa Mosque one time because he believes that those two mosques make the mountain unclean. And in order to rebuild the temple and to inaugurate the second coming of Jesus. So Christian Zionists are very much involved in supporting money politically in taking over East Jerusalem and the old city. And some Christian group have contributed money to rebuild all the artifacts that need to have in the temple. So we don't have very good reputation as evangelical Christians. Some of our evangelical Christians that took that position. Most of our listeners are American Christians. We have a number of global listeners. We have some listeners who are not Christians, but most of them are American Christians. Not all of them are going to be uh, dispensationalists. Not all of them are going to be uh, Christian Zionist folks, but, but they're all going to be committed Christians. 
wherever they are on, you know, understanding the conflict, what do you want them to know about their role and responsibility in this conflict? How might you challenge American Christians to promote peace in various ways? Christians were involved in the conflict from the beginning. So that is something that is very, very important factor that we need to know. If you read some of the British Christian writing about the area, it's typical settler colonial language. You know, the people that live there are primitive. They, they are Muslims, are not clean. They don't cultivate the land. They defile the land. And really what we need to do in those circle of Christians, we need to finish what the Crusades did not do. But we're not go- that they call it white crusades. That's the language you use. So other groups of Christians, because the mistreatment of the Jews by European Christianity mainly, the guilt because of the Holocaust, and wanting to have good relationship with Jews, especially Protestant churches. And also for the sake, and especially in America, of their dialogue between Jews and Christian and, uh, and replacement theology and Semitic ideology, they also did the mistake and say, okay, if, if you have a state, so we will stand with you and that will resolve it. But those two groups having the wrong attitude toward the Jewish people because it's racist because saying because you Jews your destiny is not with us your destiny is in the Middle East in that land and we will help you to go there it's a very racist language I mean Jews has the right to choose where they want to live Jews has the right to express their faith the way they want to to be a Jew for those groups you cannot fulfill your Jewishness and your destination and your destiny as Jewish if you're not living in the state of Israel. And that is a problematic. That is racist ideology and the problems. So we as a Christian are involved in the conflict from the beginning. And as a result, uh, because also many, especially Western Christianity, Christian has in colonial ideology in our Christianity about chosenness, about the sovereignty of God, about the people and the nation with destiny. So our destiny is to help the Jews to come back to the land and to establish the state and that very much. So we have in our theology kind of racial civilization superiority and religious superiority toward other people. And that is really a problem when in Philippians 2, we are called to serve and not to feel superior toward other people. So given that history, I think, you know, I think American Christians a lot of times resonate with pray for peace I'm one who definitely does not uh, in any way denigrate the power of prayer. I do think that praying for the peace in that region, it's exhausting. I'm sure it's much more exhausting if you're in the region. When I, I know that when I pray, it's a pretty quick prayer. It's like, God, please bring, please bring peace to Israel and Palestine and, and Gaza. And, you know, like I pray it more when there's violence like there is now. And then it kind of goes on on the list that I you know kind of come back on, yeah. Like I said at the top of the show, like I, I it's something that I I find myself shrugging at. Say you know God, your will be done because I I mean I don't have much of a will here. I I'm, I'm I'm I feel powerless to do anything about it, 
And I feel powerless in terms of even knowing what it is I should be praying for. So if you can help us a little bit think through like, what is it maybe we should be praying for? And also in addition to prayer, which I think is the primary thing. And I, that I'm not saying like the prayer doesn't, you know, prayer is just perfunctory. Prayer is, prayer is a real thing. But in addition to prayer, if American Christians played such a role in the creation of some of these issues, what role can they play in some of the solution? Yeah, I like you. I, I believe in prayer. I mean, and just uh, recently we are praying a lot. There is, there is a power in prayer. No doubt about that. But if you look into the scripture, for me, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you see, especially in the Hebrew scripture, that there is this very strong word, pursue peace. Peace requires active work. Blessed are the peace maker. You make it. So if we are representing the Prince of Peace, we are his ambassador. Like in Second Corinthians chapter 5 said, I gave you the ministry of reconciliation. I gave you the declaration of reconciliation. You are my ambassador. You're living ambassador. Ambassador don't stay home. Ambassador go to other country. They go to the enemy. They, they're active. They're proactive. Ambassador, you can be, how can you be ambassador United States in Honduras when you are in D.C.? You cannot do that. It cannot. And I think this is really a misunderstanding uh, for peace on several levels. One level is uh, the sense and the feeling of a lot of people of powerlessness like you. It's too complicated. It's going to take me a few years to understand you think that. Or people say, you know what, I don't really, in order to be involved in peacemaking, I'll have to pay a price and I'm not willing to pay that price. Are you complacent about the situation because it doesn't affect you? You think it doesn't affect you, but in matter of fact, it does affect you directly and indirectly. Or you have hatred and enmity toward other people. Why should I be engaged in peace with people I don't like? I don't like those Palestinians dancing with uh, throwing rocks and, uh, and Hamas people uh, right now uh, taking advantage of the situation in Jerusalem and shooting rocks. You know, those people are evil people. Why should I be involved with them? And there is a fundamental reason we are comfortable. We have position and privilege. And we don't want to get out from our comfortable couch in order to change the world or be involved as a peacemaking and not understanding that our lack of activities, lack of involvement, our children and grandchildren will pay a high price for that. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and 
sirens go off and they're and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. But specifically, what is it? What does working for peace mean? I mean, does it mean demonstrating? Does it mean literally, I mean, right now, travel's rather limited, but does it mean going to the Middle East and becoming, yeah, yeah, does it mean politically protesting an embassy? Does it mean going there as a medical worker? What is it that American Christians should really feel called? I mean, is it just, is it just a simple, like, call your congressman? You know, what is it that really working for peace in your mind looks like in 2021? People ask, how you define reconciliation? We define reconciliation on, on the following basis. First, we need to have a relationship with people from the other side. The American Christian side are perceived by the people of the land as their enemy as people that not want the good for them. As uh, restoring relationship and, and expressing love, empathy, and compassion to people are suffering. The second level is that we have to address injustice. We have to address uh, systematic injustice. We have to give people equality. In Christ, there is no male or female Jew or Greek. That is foundational. So we need to seek in our community, in our situation, wherever we are, we need to to work for equality for all people in opportunity, in almost every aspect of life. Part of reconciliation will be important role of forgiveness. The people are very hurting for what happened to them and also are people hurting from uh, from each other. Forgiveness is essential aspect of it. When our theology causing pain to our neighbors and enemy, it's not good theology. If our theology is seeking the welfare of our neighbors, our enemy, that is a good theology. That's what Jeremiah told the children of Israel when they went to Babylon, to the the capital of the empire of their enemy to destroy the temple. He said, pray and work for the, uh, for the peace of the city where you're living. Plant trees, get married, have children, build houses, bless other people, bless your enemy. And we need to engage with our enemy in order to understand how we can bless them. Forgive me if this sounds like too much pushback. I hear that. I hear all of what you've said. <laughs> but I I don't feel that need. I don't I don't have a conviction of the Holy Spirit that there's someone on the Israeli side or the Palestinian side that I need to forgive, or necessarily someone that I personally need to go and ask forgiveness from. So like I haven't 
had that prompting from the spirit. As I say, for, in this conflict, I feel more like, oh man, I don't know. It's just a messy situation. So I feel like maybe the question is like, so should I? Like, have I deafened myself to the spirit in some way? Or is that call to forgiveness more of a call like that I need to be more active in helping folks on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side forgive each other? Like I still am wrestling here with hearing what is the specific call for me as an American Christian who sees that situation over there? It feels distant. I grieve for it. And I hear, I hear your call though. Like the, the basis of reconciliation is forgiveness. Like super, totally, totally agree with that. But then I'm struck with connecting that to my own call, you know, 10,000 miles away from that, from that on the ground situation. How, how does that connect? Uh, in many, many areas. And the fact that you ask this question, I'm sure a lot of question of people ask this question that shows me that the disconnect between the reality Maybe you are American Christian and reality here. United States of America, your tax money is funding the major weapons and bombs in the area. The military industrial lobby in the state and the people at work and the, your tax money that you work hard for are fueling and we are your lab experiment for the next generation weapons. You are putting a lot of money in the Middle East, supporting almost $4 billion, Israel, Egypt, and other country in the Middle East. And most of that money go not for peace building, is going to buy F-35 from the United States of America. So you are involved in that level. The United States of America declared itself several decades that they are going to be the peace broker between the people are here in the land, but in reality, they were not. As a result, if you are a peace broker and you chose to be peace broker, you cannot just say the Middle East is too problematic for me. I'm just getting up, packing up, I'm leaving you and you guys work it up and running from responsibility for the huge investment of United States of America in this area and huge investment of the churches in the conflict, the churches in our conflict, I say to them, you have to be a source of blessing both for the Jews and Palestinians. And the biggest blessing that you can be, that you can join and be peacemakers, because if the situation deteriorates in the Middle East and we have large war in the Middle East, you're going to find yourself again sending your young men and women into the battle. And then you see people dying, and then you see terrorist reaction, not justifying that terrorist reaction against the United States. We're living in a village. And when your neighbor's unhappy and you're giving one neighbor uh, tools to attack the other neighbors, people are not going to like you. And, and on this one side, it has to change. Listen, it's hunting us here as Palestinian Christian. We as a church are not engaging enough in reconciliation peacemaking. The core of our gospel, the peace of God for between me and God and me and all my fellow human being, when we did the service, World Evangelical Alliance, we're doing service right now, how many organizations in the Middle East, Christian organizations, are involved in peace? How many of them you think? I don't, I, I don't know. I'm familiar with a few that, that do some aid and relief, but I, I know that, that working for 
on the political side can be very, very. No, fun. I'm not talking reconciliation, not political political side. Reconciliation has to. The political system is paralyzed. If peace is going to be here, it has to be grassroots movement. The groups that are involved in peace and forgive me if I'm strong, they're less than 15 in throughout all the Middle East. In our theology, we say we tell people about Jesus. We join the club of Jesus lover. We don't care about the world around us and we wait for the rapture or whatever it is. We become uh, chosen clubs of people and we are not involved in justice. We're not involved in compassion and we're not involved in peacemaking. If you ask yourself the question, how much money our community and our states are putting toward army and weapons, compared to how much we are involved in peace, you will understand why we have a problem. I am wondering if you can share a specific story or example of how you have helped, I would say, those in your community uh, work towards peace or find peace with someone they considered previously an enemy. I'll just give you recent stories. Last year, we had four groups of Israeli-Palestinian, one our community leaders, one are teachers, one are women, and one are public leaders. And those people went through our curriculum process. It takes a year and a half. It's really, it's not one meeting, oh, I love you and you love me. It is really a painful process, very painful process. If people will want to know more about that, our model that's being developed right now has been applied in Germany between refugees and Germany, in Britain between Muslims and Christians, in Africa. And also we have been asked to help a church in Colorado to bring people across racial lines in order to present them that model. One of the things that this group decided to do, and we asked them after they went through the process of learning about each other, history and narrative, learning about forgiveness and all those issues. And by the way, across community, not only Christian from both sides, Jews, Muslims, and, and Christians, they decided to do an environmental project. So one of the problems we have in our part of the world, too many plastic bottles. So we went to uh, an area called Wadikult in the way to the Dead Sea, and we collected plastic bottles. Then we talked about our country, our geography, about our history. And if we claim that we love this land, we need to love the land, its geography, but more than anything, we need to love those that also love the land. And we worked together. Women group went to an area of South Tel Aviv where there is a lot of drugs and sex trafficking and, and a awful situation. Palestinian women and Israeli Jewish women to help and to work there. We have also a group of women that part of organization in Israel called Women Waging Peace. It's 40,000 members of this group. that They're saying we want to put a pressure on our political leaders to achieve peace. They ask us to train them in leadership, how to meet and how to talk and to address the issue between, between those communities. 
Another group that we worked with is teachers and principals. And as a result of their training them, they began to visit each other at schools. They're talking to the school children about other people, teaching them about their history, about their culture and better to understanding. The situation makes us more determined to work for peace for our people. And that would give hope. Salim, you know, we, we were talking the past couple of minutes about different initiatives and directives that your organization has led. Do you have any examples of like a specific person who you saw their heart change or two different people who had a broken relationship who were able to repair the relationship that you could share? Yes, I had a student uh, in Bethlehem. He knew about my involvement in reconciliation. And I could see that he's disturbed, that he didn't like me. So one day I took him aside, said, there's any problem in the materials? There is any problem with information or you have struggle? Can I help you? He said, I have a problem with you. I said, why? He said, you bring Israeli and Palestinians together. So I said, why so bother you? Why, why are you troubled by that? And he told me a story. Then when I was a teenager, he saw in front of his eyes his father being shot in, in one of the marches in the neighborhood of Bethlehem. And his father was, was one of the leaders of the political party. And after he got shot, the Israeli military did not allow any medical care for him. And he saw in front of his eyes how his father is dying. Uh, seeing that, the traumatic events, all his mind was how I'm going to get even from the other side. I want to do revenge. took me a while to talk to him. Then I convinced him to come with to one of our desert trips and where he met Israelis. And one of the things that he dreamed his life is to, to come to the sea. As you know, Palestine and West Bank are not allowed to only very few times a year to go to the sea, the seashore. They don't have access to any seashore. And he wanted to learn to swim. And one of our Jewish leaders, I went, went to him and said, listen, this young man really need to have a touch of healing. And why don't you take him and teach him how to swim in the Red Sea? We were in Aqaba at that time. And I was a beautiful picture, uh, my Jewish colleague holding him floating in the, the sea. And I could see uh, my students struggling and slowly, slowly releasing and feeling comfortable. Then he came to me and he said, Salim, I want to share with you that one of the things that I wanted to do as revenge, I wanted to take a bomb and put in major Jerusalem street. And in order to do revenge for what happened to my family and to my father, my hero, he stood there and prayed with him. And he prayed, he confessed all the thoughts and feelings. And how he has been released from that. There were several Jewish people went to his mother home and asked forgiveness for what happened to her, uh, raising small children, losing husband, uh, the whole family. And he could see the tears the change. And that's so powerful when you see the power of, of God working and changing the life of people, those individuals. Individual make change because one individual 
can shoot and kill many Palestinians, and one Palestinian can take and commit uh, and put a bomb in the city of Jerusalem, and the whole process of healing between people will, will, will be stopped to large degrees. But those people have changed. They're not going to go back with the thought, the feeling, or committing action that will hurt the other side. Can you talk a little bit about the times where you have felt cynical and frustrated in the work that you do and how that's affected your faith? I will not say cynical and I'll say being let down by people that you think that they are with you in the long journey, pilgrimage of reconciliation, when the price is too high, when there is pressure from the other community, they abandon you. It's not an issue of cynical, it's an issue of more the betrayal, the sense of betrayal, because it's a hard path to walk. People that you invest years in training, uh, and then the pressure from the community or whatever it is, uh, they betray you. You, f- you feel the sense of betrayal. Probably they will say something else, but and that where you have constantly to be in the realm of forgiveness in the realm of not judging other people's action because the way they hurt you, because there are many factors. You don't know all the factors, why people made the decision. So you, you have to be careful for that judgment. But their act is act of injustice that need to be addressed. Forgiveness help you to address those issues, but doesn't mean their action is not going to be addressed in the future because it is betrayal. I wanted to just bring up the issue of race here in the States. And, you know, over the past, what, five or six years or so, we've had a lot of division in the church between communities that I would say had been working on healing and mending their relationship. This was often between African-American and white Christians. And that had been going on for some years. And I think there are many African-Americans who might have said that seeing white evangelical support for Trump just really left them frustrated and alienated. You used the word betrayed earlier. Some people would say betrayed. And that has just made me ask myself, like, you know, how do we define reconciliation? Do you see it as people being able to sit in the same room and talk to each other? You know, is it an issue if both sides end up praying for each other and having a really tender moment with each other, but then end up voting in ways that might be at odds with each other, you know, where they don't challenge their communities on issues that have hurt the other community? What do you kind of see as like the relationship between kind of like that personal reconciliation and then like the larger systems that we're all involved with? We are uh, recently involved with many African-American. And as when I lived in the state, I saw that too. The definition you gave to reconciliation, we call it stage one, is the stage of hallelujah kumbaya. That's not reconciliation. That's the first thing. Reconciliation go deeper. That means the dominant privileged group want to have relationship, the weak group, but they don't want to change the position and privilege. They don't want to lose it. They will fight it. So the weak side need to understand in order to have reconciliation, they have to struggle. They have to advocate in order to change the imbalance of power in the community. 
in, in, in order to do that, they have to be careful not to resort to violence because powerful group will say, I'm defending myself. But the other option to be silent about it is worse. So reconciliation is a struggle where not only you develop relationship with the other, also you deal with a systematic injustice system that exists in our culture. Part of it is the issue of identity. Out of what I observe, that in America, Christianity has been many times associated, especially evangelical, many times associated with white people. White people is not people that only have a white skin. White people is a certain identity of including Italians, uh, including German, including uh, other people that becoming what we define white people also in the church. So the issue of identities that's built on race or color of skin in the American church and American culture is the, the problem. And part of reconciliation is you have to go through identity transformation. And right now you have in the state, I'm simplistically, you have one tribe called Republican, one tribe called Democrat, and they're not talking to each other because the issue is fundamental worldview, the issue of identity, of moral values. In that process of reconciliation, uh, one of the things is that you go through a process where the distinct aspect of your identity uh, has been kept but also you embrace aspect from the other people identity and you create something third. It's basically what Paul in second Ephesian is talking about. You, the Gentile, you were one time far away. Now you brought in and together with the Jews in Jesus at this time, the Jews at that time built position and privilege because of race or because God giving them the, the law. Of, uh, because the chosen people right now, your chosenness is not exclusiveness. Your chosenness is welcoming other people into the blessing and the goodness that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave it to us. Come and be with us. And in that process, you build a new identity. So the U.S. has a major issue, not only of systematic injustice system, also the issue of identity. The church in America, especially the evangelical church, not only the evangelical, I think also the mainline churches, that need to revisit that Christianity is the religion of white people. Christianity started in the Middle East started with a Jewish person that is Jewish and Palestinian. It's called started here. Jesus is not the blonde, blue eyes. Christianity is not American Christianity. Christianity is people that follow Jesus from all tribes, all languages, where their identity is celebrated, but also welcoming other people. And if you are not going to deal with that, you will continue to have struggle and problems. Thank you very much, Salim, for for going over this very contentious issue in our world today and giving us a lot to think about, especially as Christians. I really appreciated 
just hearing more of the context and the work that you do. And I invite people who have feedback or additional questions to send us an email. We are at podcast with an S, podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Let's move to the segment we call Precious Moments, when everyone can share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, do you have something for us? Morgan, uh, my precious moment this week was an outing that I had with the local DuPage Birding Club. It is just a lovely group. I mean, I, I started getting into birding about three or four years ago, figuring out what to do as, as the men of our, our church congregation. One of the things we decided to do for the summer was just to, to have different men in the church introduce the other men in the church to their kind of passions and hobbies. So we kind of had a, a grown-up show and tell. And so a friend of mine took us out on a birding excursion and I was immediately hooked. I said, this, this is clicks all the buttons for me. It's a wonderful moment in nature. It There's a kind of a collection aspect. There's definitely a learning aspect. And there's a wonder. There's a wonder and awe. I've had to learn as someone who grew up in Hawaii and Seattle to learn how to appreciate the subtle beauties of Illinois. And birds are a way of subtle appreciating beauties. Kind of subtle beauties. So, well, you know, I mean, you know, I lived in, you know, when I lived in Kenya for a bit, you know, there, there's these, you know, what they call the charismatic megafauna. It's really easy to get, you know, super into the lions. But, you know, to be like, hey, look at that, you know, brown bird over there. There's some cool things about it. You know, I'm like, yeah, that there that is cool. And it's also lovely. I will say one of the most lovely things, I'm a very audio, audio, audio driven person. It is lovely to go out now and to be like, rather than just be like, oh, I hear birds to be able to go out and hear specific birds and to know like what birds are, are singing and to be able to hear like, oh, that's a bird that's unusual for my neighborhood. Or, oh, that's a bird that's unusual for this time of year. So that is lovely birding. My precious moment was to go out with the local bird club. They have these kind of free walks where you just kind of go out and there's some extremely knowledgeable people that'll be out there helping you look and pointing out you know what's cool and giving you tips. And it was a lovely, a lovely walk in the woods. So yeah, didn't see a ton, to be honest with you. It was a bad day from the multitude of birds, but it makes you appreciate the ones that you do see. So it was, it was a joy. So I recommend if, if you have not tried birding, go find someone who is into it. And just being around someone who's enthusiastic about something, and birders are an enthusiastic bunch, let me tell you. Being around someone who's enthusiastic and having giving them the opportunity to do a show and tell with you, I can pretty much guarantee that'll be a great day. So that's my precious moment. Morgan, how about you? My precious moment was organizing a birthday party for one of my friends here on Tuesday night and also working with all these other people that worked to give him a really great party. I had one friend who I felt like just went above and beyond with how he contributed. He ended up making curry for everyone, which also involved him making rice on a propane stove on his table that he brought to the park, <laughs> <laughs> which was amazing. And that's 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 not super easy to no. do. Sure. And he, someone else, went to a vegan ice cream, or they bought vegan ice cream at this really nice ice cream boutique shop. 
And then also they bought a cooler, which they didn't previously have, and brought that over. We also got lights at Target. And these are the lights that are like battery powered. And so they decorated on the lawn with that and this whole like setup. Anyway, I think I'm just like always encouraged. That kind of sounds like a trite word, but like moved and feel really loved when I see other people love other people well. I know that my friend's best friend who was not here was just like touched by seeing him celebrated that much. So I was happy to be a part of that and happy that people were so generous in their time and money and energy to pull that off. Shout out to them. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Salim. Other than the joy of two grandchildren, two weeks ago, my wife and I went for a hike. And the hike was kind of remembering what's happened after the resurrection that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. We went to hike from Jerusalem to Emmaus, where, first of all, I enjoyed the hike, the nature going out. And I like more the voice of birds than the singing. It gave me joy. Then we arrived to the well of the spring where Jesus was with his type disciples, breaking the bread and with this small group of people sat around. And we talked about the situation and listened to that. And we, many of us, confused about what's happened in Jerusalem. Sounds familiar? Disciples were confused what's going on in Jerusalem. Where God, what's happened? This Jesus would believe in him. Where is he? He's been crucified. The whole project that he endeavored come to an end. And then he revealed himself to them through breaking the bread and eating with them. And I think that brought me a joy because we are living in a world of confusion. We're living in a world there is conflicting information. But there is one thing that can help us to navigate throughout life. The Lord that been crucified is risen, and His Holy Spirit will give us discernment, wisdom, and the power to do the things that He calls us to do. Wow. Hmm. Well, great. thank you for sharing that, Salim. Can you tell people where they can find you online, how they can find more about your organization? Yes, musalaha.org is on the website, M-U-S-A-L-A-H-A.org. And you can find a lot of information there and you can write to us. Uh, We have a lot of American groups that are coming to the land to do study, to learn. This is one question being asked is after you visit the land, you are not going to be the same. Visiting the land is not visiting only the archaeological site, is living and seeing the living stones, the believers, the church, and how the church here are trying to manifest and its message in, in that situation. So there is a lot of opportunity for engagement with us. By the way, there is a book called Journeys Through the Storm that I have written, been published by Leningham Publication Trust. And also, I have written a book with Lisa Loden. She's Messianic Jews and myself, uh, Through My Enemy Eyes. This book that really addresses the narratives, the identity, and the theology of reconciliation, where both positions uh, is uh, presented. 
And also another book that we edited together called The Lands Cries Out, where you have six articles by Messianic Jews, six articles by Palestinian Christians, six by Western Christians, all dealing with the issue of theology of the land. Thank you, Salim. Listeners, please write to us. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And as you know, we really appreciate that method for feedback that is episode-based. For those of you that want to go above and beyond and support the entire show, as Ted and I talked about briefly last week, we are doing an entry to give away quick to listen mugs. If you did not remember hearing that or want some additional instructions about how that works, essentially go to Apple Podcasts review the show, screenshot your review, send it to podcast at christianneedtoday.com and we will enter you in this drawing to receive them. We've ordered like 25 mugs, so we have lots of mugs to give out to people. That's it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Linder. The transcriber is Boonia Shola and the music is by Sweeps. Just to reiterate, send us an email, podcast at christianneedtoday.com com. You can get this wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.